Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 once again. I had anticipated covering three verses this weekend. However, given the substance of those verses, we're going to make it through one. Look at verse 14 uh, tonight, chapter 4. I had entitled this message, The Best Help During Temptation, and we'll finish this uh, the week after, Lord willing, the week after the men's retreat, we'll do verses 15 and 16. It's very important for us to remember the context of this letter and the message of the writer to these Jewish professors to believe in Jesus. They're professing faith in Jesus. And his appeal continues to them. They had heard the gospel. They'd heard about Jesus. They had initially turned from Judaism towards Jesus. But they had apparently failed to make a commitment to Jesus. And as a result, the temptation to fade away was very strong to them in the face of persecution, in the face of trials and difficulties. Without that firm commitment, the cares of this world, the trials of this world, can in fact eat away at whatever little faith we may have, and we will fall away. So it's vital that we be utterly, absolutely committed, that we know that we're committed, that we know that the Lord knows that we're committed, and we're in there full on. So he says to them, in effect, throughout this passage, He says, reflect now. You know that Judaism wasn't the answer. You know that Judaism did not satisfy the needs of your life. You know how dissatisfied you were with your life. You can be religious and be empty. Isn't that true? You can sit in any church across this land, call yourself a Christian, and be empty inside. Be dissatisfied. We understand that reality. So he's saying this to them also. You know, Judaism wasn't the answer. Well, you turn from Judaism and you turn to Jesus, but still you're dissatisfied with your life. Something's wrong. You know that Jesus is superior to the prophets. You know that he's superior to the angels. You know that he's superior to Moses. You know that he's superior to Joshua. You know the danger of not trusting Him. You know what the consequence is. See, all of this has been spelled out to them. All of this, not only in in the letter that He's written to them, but also in all the teaching that they've gotten, which, which brought them to that brink of decision. They know all these things. Their, their rational, cognitive understanding is very real. So he says, in effect, to them, 
what's keeping you from this most important decision. And that decision was what? To step over that line and really commit themselves to Jesus Christ. What's holding you back? Remember his refrain? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't be like those who perished in the wilderness. Speaking of that generation of Israelites, uh, way back they'd come out of Egypt. And again, the refrain is, what's holding you back? You know all these things. Nothing has been hidden from you. What's holding you back from this most important decision? He's urgently appealing for them to not delay in accepting God's salvation. To not delay in entering into God's perfect rest in Christ. The only way that they would know His rest, the only way that they could enter His rest, was by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we've gone over this territory, but it's vital that we continue to rehearse it. Um, For I know that repetition is the best teacher. Now, until now, as we've read through these passages up to this particular point, until now, the appeal to them has largely been uh, negative. It's been based on fear of what would happen to them if they didn't put their faith in Jesus. He says, if you do not believe, you'll be doomed. You'll be forever apart from God and never enter His rest. So the appeal has been negative. It's been frightening. It's been terrifying. But with verses 14 through 16, the appeal now turns to the positive side. He begins to appeal to them from a different perspective. He's told them now what would happen if they didn't believe But now he's going to approach it from that positive side. Read verses 14 through 16 with me of Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 14 starts with the word, therefore. It points back now to what he has said earlier about Jesus in chapter 3 being our high priest. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we, what? Profess. So he's saying you you have professed faith in Jesus. What's critical now is that you hold firmly to that faith. And he speaks of Jesus as a great high priest who has gone through the heavens And then he goes on and he says this in verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of wrath with... I couldn't slip that by you, huh? Just checking to see if you're reading with me. Let us approach the throne of what? Grace. Grace, The throne of grace. With what? Confidence. Confidence. See, these people needed what? They needed to know that they could confidently approach this throne of grace. And that what was available to them? Mercy and grace. Grace in their time of what? Need. Now we're going to get into those last two verses in much more detail um, 
in a couple of weeks, but I want us to focus on verse 14 tonight. Do you know that salvation does more than just keep us out of hell? Salvation does much more than just keeping us out of hell. We typically tend to think about being saved from hell. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. There's always this this negative side of the gospel that we focus on. It not only saves us from spiritual death and separation from God, it brings us spiritual life. It brings us spiritual life. Do you remember Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 10? Anybody remember that, what he said? I came that they should have life. Yeah, and have it to the full, have it abundantly. He didn't come that we should kind of scrape through. He didn't come that we should just meagerly uh, experience life as he, as he gives it. He came that we should have life and we should have it to the full. And this is, this is the point of uh, the writer's direction now, is that he is emphasizing not just the fact that we'd be saved from hell, but that salvation brings us life. It brings us spiritual life. Beloved, Jesus should not be sought only because of what will happen if we do not commit to him. I would submit to you that he should be sought because of what will happen when we do commit to him. What happens to you when you commit to Jesus? What, what, what happens to your life? Becomes a bummer? Huh? No. Think about this. If there were no other reason in the entire universe to be saved... Who Jesus is would be reason enough. Who Jesus is would be reason enough. You know, we, we have this tendency to so focus on our own wants, our own needs, our own goodies, that we lose sight of what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. And that should be enough. Excluding everything else. Just to know Him. Just to be with him. Just to have the privilege of being in a relationship with him. Coming into a living relationship with him is the greatest experience. Let me say that again. Coming into a living relationship with Jesus Christ is the greatest experience any person could ever hope to have. Could you say that about your life as a Christian? Could you say that? Coming into relationship with Jesus was the greatest experience I have ever had in my life. I mean, really, can we say that with enthusiasm? Can we say that? Wow, yes. Is He all I need? Really? If Jesus and and the relationship with Jesus was all I had and, and He gave me no other thing, would that be sufficient? Would I be blessed beyond measure? Yes. So this is the point he's trying to make. That not only not committing to Christ means eternal damnation, but you miss life. He wants to give life. He wants to make the greatest difference in the world. To live in fellowship with Jesus would be a glorious thing even if there were no hell to escape. 
even if there was no hell. Just to be able to know him and be able to come into relationship with him would be the most glorious thing, wouldn't it? I mean, think about it. Have you ever been in love with somebody? Anybody ever been in love? Gosh, not everybody. If you didn't raise your hand, you ought to try it. It's, being in love is wonderful. I mean, you can be delirious, can't you? Have, you know, those of you that raised your hand have been in love. Isn't it delirious? We have a newlywed couple. Armando and Myra Velasco. Stand up, would you? Aren't they beautiful? You've been married how many days now? Uh, three weeks. Three weeks? Mm-hmm. It's been three weeks already? Three whole weeks? Isn't it wonderful? Yep. Do you love him? I love him. Oh, with all your heart? <laughs> Do you love her? With all your heart? Yep. Now, when you first fell in love, is, is this, if I, if I'm going to try and characterize what it was probably like. Could you, could you not think of anything else except this other person? I mean, really? I mean, you know, you're going, oh gosh, Myra, oh Myra, oh, I can hardly wait to see her. And you'd say probably, oh Armando, I wish he could call me. I can see <laughs> anything like that going? For me, it's like that now. For the, it's like that still? <laughs> After three weeks of marriage? <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> And of course, it's like that for Mondo, right? Yep. Absolutely. Okay, you guys can sit down. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're in love, when you're in a relationship with somebody who has taken your heart, or you've given your heart to, I mean, you, you, you largely can't, you don't care about much else, do you? You just want to be with that person. You want to see him. You want to hear from him. You want to talk with him. Your life is smitten. You, you go around saying, I'm the luckiest person in the world. I'm the luck. God, you've blessed me. Do we experience that in our relationship with Jesus? Are we thinking about him? Is our relationship with him something that is glorious and wonderful? See, that's, that's what we're going to miss, is the wonder if we're not committed. That's what he's saying to these Hebrews. Committed to Christ. The greatest, glorious thing that any human being could ever experience. We have, we have ample reason to receive Jesus Christ and enter into God's rest. Not only because of fear of His judgment but because of his beauty, the beauty of Jesus, the wonder of who he is. Not only because of his wrath, but also because of his grace. He's gracious. Not only because he is judge, but also because he's a merciful and faithful high priest. What a picture. A merciful and faithful high priest. That's what we have been told already up to this point. We'll review some of those verses. But I want to talk to you in the context of these three verses about three things that make Jesus 
a great high priest. The first thing that makes him a great high priest, this is what we're going to look at tonight, is that he is the perfect priest. He is the perfect priest. The second and third things, which we'll look at another time, he is the perfect person. And the third is that he provides perfectly for all of our needs. So those those three things make him the great high priest. In other words, he is the only one who is uniquely qualified, enabled to open the way to God for us. Nobody else can open the way to God for us. Really. So he is the perfect priest. But not only that, he is the only one who understands all of our temptations and sympathizes with all of our weaknesses. He's the perfect person. When you want somebody to talk to who really understands and sympathizes, he's the perfect person. And thirdly, he is the only one who can meet all of our needs through his mercy and through his grace. He is the only one that can meet all of our needs, bar none, through his mercy and his grace. He is a great high priest. Now let's look at his perfect priesthood, if you will. We, we have so far been introduced to the reality of his high priesthood in this Hebrew letter. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, flip back just a couple pages, chapter 1, verse 3. What indication is there in that verse to Jesus' high priesthood? Anybody? He had provided purification for sins. Wasn't that the job of the priest in ancient Israel? To provide purification for sins through the sacrificial system? So right in the get-go, right in the very first chapter, we see we're introduced to his work as a high priest. If you look at chapter 2, verse 17. At chapter 2, verse 17, again, he is described as a merciful and faithful high priest. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He is described as the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Later on, when we study chapters 7 through 9, those, those three chapters are devoted exclusively to, to his high priesthood and to defining it and helping us understand what that means in greater, greater detail. And we will spend some time on those chapters. But in verse 14 of chapter 4, he is called a great high priest. This is the only place where that term is used, a great high priest. Now you and I, just reading that passage, we would, we would read that word great and probably just pass over it and think it was just a, you know, uh, uh, an adverb or an adjectival expression. He is a great high priest. But what we need to understand is that was a technical term. In ancient Israel, the term high priest was given not only to the person who held the office of high priest, but it was also given to those who retired from that office. 
It was given to those who were associate priests. It was given, uh, in other words, it wasn't only limited to the high priest in the office at that particular point in time. But it was also given, the term high priest, it was also given to the one who was the head of all the priests. He was called the great high priest. Now what implication can we draw from this regarding Jesus? If in ancient Israel there was one priest, whether or not he occupied the office, he was still given the term high priest, but he was over all the priests, which made him the great high priest. There was only one of those. Now if that's true of the ancient priesthood of Israel, what can we draw, what what application, how can we uh, apply that to Jesus? Is not Jesus over all the priests? So he is the what? He is the great high priest. Now the Jews would recognize that. They would see that. They took great pride in the fact that they had this high priest and this one particular high priest who was over all the priests, that they had this mediator between God and man. It gave them a great deal of pride and comfort. So the writer says to them, but there is a greater great high priest. Now who was, who were the priest's descendants of? Anybody remember? Aaron, right? And, and, and Levi was the son of Aaron, right? But they were, the, they were descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. Remember? Okay. Now I want you to notice something about verse 14. What does it say about Jesus. The son of God. So, so they would name a high priest, and everybody knew that the high priest was a descendant of Aaron. But there's a greater great high priest, Jesus, who is the son of who? God. Hence, he is a greater high priest than the ones that they had been accustomed to. You follow his argument? See, he's still keeping with this theme of Jesus greater, Jesus greater. Why? always to underscore that there's no other person, no other resource that they can go to. They must stay firmly committed to Jesus. He's better. He's better. He's greater than every other resource that they had known in their life and their experience. Now, the priests of ancient Israel were appointed by God to be the mediators between himself and men. Isn't that true? They were to offer the sacrifices that God required for sin. And the sacrifices were offered uh, daily on a daily basis, were they not? Only the high priest could offer the highest sacrifice under the old covenant law. What was the highest sacrifice? It was offered on what? What day? The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Okay, day of covering. That's what it means, literally. Only the high priest could offer that sacrifice. He did it how many times? Once a year. On the one high holy day that Israel celebrated. And as he offered that, he would take, he would go into the Holy of Holies, symbolically bringing the sins of the people. And 
he would sprinkle blood, the blood of a sacrificial animal, on the mercy seat. And what was the mercy seat? The mercy seat was the cover, wasn't it, for the Ark of the Covenant? It was the cover. And it was a place where the presence of God would come and dwell. It was a holy place, and it was in the Holy of Holies. So the high priest would once a year go into the Holy of Holies, and he'd sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of a vicarious sacrifice, a vicarious victim. And this blood was meant to what? It was meant to atone. But could it really atone? No. It could only cover over. That's why it's called Yom Kippur, Day of Covering. It couldn't do anything about the sins. It just could cover over the sins temporarily. And that's why these sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over, year after year after year. They had no permanent, long-lasting effect. It was a temporary, expedient statement that God was willing to cover over temporarily those sins in anticipation of one final sacrifice which would come. Remember? No, as no other human instrument could, only the high priest could represent God before the people and could represent the people for God. No other person could do this. This is why it's so important to understand why Jesus is called high priest. Because in the, in the economy of ancient Israel, only the high priest could represent God to the people and the people to God. Only the high priest could be the mediator. Now to enter the Holy of Holies, he had to go through three entrances, if you will. He would take the blood of the sacrificial animal, pass through one door and come into what's known as the outer court. And then he would pass through another door and come into the holy place. And then he would yet pass through one more entrance. He would have to come through the veil into the very holy of holies. So he passed through three entrances to get into the Holy of Holies where he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. And when he was in the Holy of Holies, he did not sit down, he did not delay. You can understand why. He was to meet God there. And if the sacrifice were not acceptable if he had not made proper atonement for his own sin, and you read this in Leviticus chapter 16, he could die. That's why they had a practice of tying a rope around his waist so that when he went into the Holy of Holies, should something happen to him unforeseen. See, no one else could go in there. They would just drag the body out. I'm serious. They reverenced God... And this high priest went into that Holy of Holies with great fear and trembling. 
It is an awesome thing to be in the presence of the living God. So he doesn't, he goes in, he doesn't sit down, he doesn't delay, he does the sprinkling, and man, he is out of there. (laughs) He is out of there. Every year, year after year, another Yom Kippur was necessary. Every year. And between those yearly sacrifices, every day, day after day, thousands of sacrifices were offered, both of produce and animals. And the process never ended. It never was complete. There was this ongoing process of sacrifice daily. It never was completed because the priesthood was not perfect and the sacrifices were not perfect. They had to keep going on and on, a never-ending cycle of sacrifice. Now this leads us to Jesus. If you understand the background, if you understand what the Jewish sacrificial system and the import of the high priest was in that system, now we turn our attention to Jesus, a great high priest. After he had made the one-time perfect sacrifice on the cross, having gone through the heavens, he went to the heavenly sanctuary, the presence of God, the holiest of holies. That's what the verse tells us, doesn't it? He went through the heavenlies. He passed through the heavenlies to the very presence of God, the holiest of holies. Now, when Jesus got there and he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, if you will, What was different between when he was there and when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies? Anything different? What does Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tell us? What did he do? He sat down. He sat down. Why could he sit down? Because the work is finished. The sacrifice, one final sacrifice, has done it all. Where the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, he couldn't sit down, he couldn't dilly-dally, he couldn't hang out. Man, he had to get in a spring of blood and get out of there. Jesus went in and sat down. He stayed. He did not have to leave. That is great news. That is great news. Incidentally... You know, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 writes about, he says, I knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, was transported up to the third heaven. Do you remember that passage? I thought that fascinating, given the fact that the high priest has to pass through three entrances to get into the Holy of Holies. Now, this is pure speculation on my part. But I wonder if the third heaven that Paul would refer to would be the very holy of holies, the holiest of holies, the very presence of God. If there's that third heaven, what's the second heaven? Well, maybe the second heaven is outer space. The first heaven would be just the atmosphere around the globe. I don't know. But I think that was an interesting, interesting thought. 
Of course, we can't be definitive about that. But our great high priest passed through the heavens. And when he got to the presence of his father, when he got there, he sat down. God said, in effect, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. My son, Jesus Christ, accomplished the final atonement. Do you know you can break that word atonement down into three separate words? Do you remember that, that little uh, device? How many know that? Atonement. Write this down. At one meant. Being at one with God. Truly. Because of the work of Christ. He accomplished the final atonement for all sins, for all time. For all those who would come to him by faith. And accept what he did. The door is flung wide open. Jesus said, Who, whoever will come, I will not cast away. And so the writer to the Hebrews is appealing for these uncommitted Jews to accept Christ as their true high priest. As their true great high priest. He's demonstrated to them his work, he is the great high priest. He says, now receive him, he is your great high priest. And they should demonstrate that their profession of faith is a genuine possession of faith by holding firm to Jesus as their Savior. Holding firm. How else would we know? How else could we possibly know except that we hold firm to what we say we believe. We hold firm though the storms of life blow against us. We hold firm. There is no other person except Jesus who can bring us to God. Jesus ended the need for all the Jewish priesthood, for all the ritualistic sacrifices. He ended all that with his finished work. It would only be another Less than 40 years, and the Roman legions would come to Jerusalem, and they would burn the city and sack it, and at the same time they destroyed the temple in the year 70 A.D. They took the temple apart stone by stone. The whole temple, as, they, as it burned, all the gold gilding seeped down in between the cracks of the stones, and for the Roman soldiers to get the gold, they literally took the temple apart stone by stone. So the temple was leveled, absolutely leveled, destroyed totally. That was the only place where sacrifices could be offered. Is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, still celebrated? Still celebrated. It is still celebrated as the highest holy day in Judaism, isn't it? But there are no priests involved, are there? And there's no sacrifices offered either, are there? No. Because there are no priests, and there is no temple where the sacrifices could be offered. You see, with Jesus' final sacrifice, he brought an end to all of that ritualistic priesthood. He brought an end to all of the ritualistic sacrifices. Beloved, he made the one final sacrifice. And he's appealing, the writer is appealing to them have professed a faith in Jesus. 
That there is no other priesthood. There is no other high priest. There is one high priest. Jesus. Now, question. We live in the New Testament. Has the New Testament made any provision at all for priests and sacrifices today? Did Jesus or the apostles establish any kind of special priesthood for the church? There's an interesting verse, two of them. 1 Peter chapter 2, write these, write these down. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 9. 5 and 9, two verses. Peter refers to the church, that is to all true believers, as a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. Rather than a special order of priests, all true believers now are what? We are priests. We are priests. But we have one high priest who has offered one final sacrifice, who has gone into the Holy of Holies and has sat down, evidencing the work is finished. Sin has been once and for all, dealt with. Now, Christians, as God's redeemed ones, we are types of priests in this general sense. We are responsible for bringing God to other people, aren't we? And aren't we responsible for bringing people to God? through our teaching and preaching and witnessing and how we live our lives and all these different dynamics, we are in a very real sense a royal priesthood to our God and we do fulfill, in a general sense, something of the role that the ancient priest did. And that is what? Bringing God to people, bringing God's good news to people and bringing people, introducing people to Jesus. Now we don't do it in the formal sense that it was done in ancient Israel, but we do it in a very general sense. We are a royal priesthood. We are, beloved, a holy priesthood to our God. Now, what sacrifices are uh, set forth in the New Testament? Hmm? Yourself. Is there a particular verse that we could refer to? Oh, Romans 12.1. Yeah, that's a good one, right? Romans 12.1 specifically is set up because it's in that verse when Paul says, looking back and keeping in view God's mercy, that our only possible response is that we should offer ourselves, our bodies, as what kind of sacrifices? Living sacrifices as opposed to the dead sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament. Now, somebody said that the only problem with uh, a living sacrifice is that when you get it on the altar, it's not very long before it wants to wiggle off. How many of us have said, oh, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And a few hours later, we go, well, ah. I signed that thing for children's church. I'm not sure now, you know. (laughs) 
Beloved, there is no special order of priesthood and there is no special system of sacrifices either taught or recognized in the New Testament. This is a great bearing on us, great bearing on the Christian church. For there are claims of special priestly mediations between God and man still. All such claims... All such claims in offering forgiveness for sins and making atonement for sins by supposedly repeating Christ's sacrifice through some ritual or any other such claim or practice. These are entirely unbiblical. They are, if you will, a repudiation of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no biblical warrant for a special order of priesthood, or for a special repetition of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It was once for all. We have our perfect and great high priest. He has already made once and for all the only sacrifice that will ever, ever need to be made for sin, the only effective sacrifice that could be made for sin. He has made it. We need no other sacrifice. Nothing else need be done to please God. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. He has done the final work. Any other priest, any other person who attempts to reconcile, to be an intermediary between God and man, is not a mediator, but is in fact a barrier it's by faith in Jesus Christ. It's by faith in Jesus Christ that any person, any person, can directly enter into God's presence, can directly enter into God's rest. That's why when Jesus died, the veil into the entrance of the Holy of Holies was ripped in half from top to bottom as if God's hand himself ripped that veil and threw open the entrance to the very throne room of God. Any Christian, any person by faith can come. You don't need an intermediary. Jesus has already done that intermediary work for us. It's a finished work. And this is the message that these Hebrews needed to receive and to believe. And not go back to Judaism. Not go back to the old high priest and sacrificial system. For they already have a great high priest. Jesus, the Son of God himself. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, we praise you that you are our great high priest. We thank you that we can come with confidence, God, to your very throne. That mercy can be had there and that we can find grace for all of our needs. Jesus, we affirm our faith. We affirm our confidence in you. We love you tonight. And we praise your holy name.
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We have a great salvation in Jesus. There is no other name under heaven which is given to men by which they must be saved. There is that one name. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no man can come to the Father but through me. Jesus. Commit your way to him. Commit your way to him fully. Jesus is the answer for your life today. Amen? Amen. Oh, I still have five more minutes. Glory to God. <laughs> Let's stand and sing his praises one more one more time before we dismiss. You have purchased Lord with your blood and from every tribe and every tongue you have made us Lord priests to our God a mighty kingdom strong and to you we bow we sing